0: I recently reread a short book called On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. Professor Snyder is a historian and professor at Yale. Uh, his other books include Bloodlands: uh, Europe between Stalin and Hitler and The Road to Unfreedom. He's an expert in 20th century history of Europe, uh, uh, Eastern Europe and Central Europe, uh, and he's an expert in Holocaust. On Tyranny uh, is a list of relevant lessons for citizens who face rising authoritarianism and fascism. Uh, And after Trump's election in 2016, uh, I actually started buying these and giving them as gifts because it's just a small pamphlet, really. Um, They have sort of ideas like lesson one is called Don't Obey in Advance. Lesson five is called Remember Professional Ethics. Uh, In Lesson 5, Snyder reminds us that many of the highest-ranking Nazis were lawyers. Hitler's personal attorney, Hans Frank, believed that law was meant to serve the race. So what what seemed good for the race was therefore the law. Frank was the governor of occupied Poland, um, the governor-general of occupied Austria, and Holland were also attorneys. So lesson five is a call to all professionals to remember their ethics, and Snyder closes it like this, quote. If members of professions think of themselves as groups with common interests, with norms and rules that oblige at all times, then they can gain confidence and indeed a certain kind of power. Professional ethics must guide us precisely when we are told that the situation is exceptional. There is no such thing as just following orders. If members of the professions can fuse their specific ethics with the emotions of the moment, however, they can find themselves saying and doing things that they might have previously thought unimaginable. A little footnote to that. um, Hans Frank (coughs) was tried at Nuremberg, found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity, and hanged. Welcome everyone, comrades and friends Uh, We're here in Highlands Bunker We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower Behind enemy lines in the belly of the beast I was so happy uh, today To uh, get a delivery from a friend of mine I have a little placard And a button Uh, The Delaware News Guild Is unionizing And we wanted to uh, give a shout out Of solidarity from the bunker To uh, all you news guys So thanks a lot, we'll be watching Uh, which you're doing as well with interest. My guest this evening is Dwayne Bensing. Uh, He's a lawyer for the Delaware ACLU. Um, He has um, a big case that he's working on. Uh, He's also working on a lot of organizing stuff we're doing. Um, And he has a very interesting background, and the reason that I uh, selected that little bit from the um, Timothy Snyder book will become evident um, if you don't know some of the story already. Uh, But uh, Dwayne, thanks for coming.
1: Of course, thanks for having me. Of course.
0: Um, Yeah, so we usually start um, at the beginning. So uh, where did you grow up? What was it like? Did you have brothers and sisters? What did your parents do?
1: Sure. Uh, I am from Springdale, Arkansas also known as Chickendale. So I think it's hilarious that people often talk about Delaware having more chickens than people. And I definitely grew up in a town that had feathers running you know, down the sidewalks. So it's like, I just can't escape these damn chickens. How big's the town? Uh, it's about, I think now it's probably about 50,000. Growing up it was somewhere probably 20, 30. It's right outside of Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the University of okay, Arkansas yeah, is. Yeah. Um, but I was uh, raised primarily by my grandmother, grandma by heart, not by blood. Um, I was uh, born to two parents who really didn't know what they were doing as parents and didn't have the financial means to take care of me, and so asked this family friend if she would raise their son, and she agreed, and um, and so she's, like, really a big reason why I've uh, made it. Um, and uh, So anyway, grew up in Arkansas, raised by her primarily. My parents came back in the picture, had my sister... Uh, who's four years younger than I am? So, were
0: your parents still in your life? Did they come back, and you sort of grew up with the sister, or, or But you Kinda, knew, of, you knew who they who they were.
1: Absolutely, yep, okay, I see. yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, uh, she. Once my parents, you know, when I was four, my parents. So I, I was actually born in California. This is like way too complicated. Now this is born getting in good. California, this is actually getting very good. But uh, uh, my parents asked, you know, my grandmother, I call her Annie. Um, what would. Take care of me she agreed but she's from arkansas so she'd moved back to arkansas took me with her uh and then when i was four my parents moved to arkansas had my sister so then my parents were in the picture but annie was like our babysitter and my parents worked all the time so she was really that primary parental figure um so yeah that's that's that background went to the university of arkansas right up the road in fayetteville
0: you want to give us a, a suey razorbacks
1: Ooh. Pigs. There you, go, there you go.
0: Razorbacks. <laughs> they all. Everybody knows how to do
1: it. Of course, um, very indoctrinated. Nice, nice. Very indoctrinated.
0: So uh, you. So you went there originally. Now was you, Was it your. Was was law school the goal from the beginning.
1: Yeah, law school had been a goal for a long time. I don't think that you know growing up in Arkansas, nobody knows what lawyers. are. Uh, generally do and so I did debate in high school and people were like oh you're great at debate you should be a lawyer I mean it turns out like being a lawyer means you sit in a room all by yourself and read and write all day long and there's not much debating happening um but uh, so I thought early on that I wanted to be an attorney and um I applied to law school but at the same time I applied to do teach for America and so I deferred law school to teach in Philadelphia, so I taught for two years before law school, Um, which I think, you know, people look at my resume now, they're like, oh, you always knew you wanted to be an education civil rights lawyer because you did teach for America, and I really didn't. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, and I knew I wanted to do uh, public interest, public service work before law school, and that's why I did teach for America, and it just so happened that my first big pro bono case uh, at a law firm out of law school related to Title IX uh, education. So that's kind of how I got into education, civil rights work. Um, What got you in? What
0: what was the... I mean, some people have a moment and some people just sort of have a feeling or a philosophy. But, um, you know, knowing that you wanted to do Teach for America uh, coming out uh, and do sort of public service, really, um, what was your motivation to do that? Do you remember when you thought, I'm going to do this?
1: Yeah. uh, I... My... Uh, my sister actually went to a different school district than I did. Uh, I went to a great, Springdale uh, for all of its, some fa- or some of its faults, had a great public education system uh, and and the folks in Springdale really invested in their public schools. And um, so I was just so fortunate. I had all these AP programs and all these after school curriculars and just, I, I am a proud product of public schools. Um, and my sister went to a school not thirty miles away, a different district, small district, underfunded. Does it sound familiar to anybody? Um, and uh, you know, just did not have the same opportunities that I had. And so by the time that I like really understood what that meant for people's trajectory, and don't get me—my sister is wildly successful and did just fine. Um, but uh, you know, it really hit close to home. Teach for America's mission at that time, when they were recruiting, and and I'm not a, I don't drink all the Kool Aid of Teach for America. I'm, I'm somewhat critical of of some of the elements, particularly of my experience in Teach for America. Um, but at the time, it really resonated with me that there were these disparities, and that what we needed. Was uh, to have that there was a t- there was a teacher shortage that Teach for America was trying to address, and what we really needed was to get people experience in the classrooms of under resourced communities, so that they would be lifelong advocates for serving these underserved populations in through public education. And that really resonated with me because of my own, you know, my own success and my own sister's uh, lack of uh, access to those kinds of opportunities. What are some of the critiques? Of Teach for America.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, we talk about education, sort of writ large, and you know, we're sort of put everything into blocks, but it's not that it's it's not that uh, easy, you know. Like charter schools, it's not. I'm not a huge fan of the idea of charter schools, but in certain situations, it's serving a need that otherwise, you know. So there's benefits. So it's it's complicated. And as you said, Teach for America is set up to Bring really motivated people to areas where they're really needed, um, and underserved kids. Really, um, I actually worked. I did tutoring online uh, one one term uh, with, the, with through Teach for America. I was working, but um, in reading in uh, in DC. Um, so they had a program with them. So I know that a, a lot of effort, and it's like important. But what what are some of the drawbacks? What, what, how would you critique
1: it? Sure. I mean, I think that my biggest overarching um, commentary on it, I guess, maybe more than criticism, is that teaching is a profession. If you walked into my office now and said, I'm going to do a six-week summer program and I'm going to be a civil rights lawyer, um, you'd be laughed out of the building, right? Like, we know that being a lawyer is a profession that requires training uh, and experience, right? And teaching is... A harder job than than any legal job i have had um yet i had no experience uh going into it had no i mean i was a political science communication double major i didn't know anything about science which is what i ended up teaching i didn't know anything about child development or children and i was teaching middle schoolers of all ages and i didn't know anything about teaching um and i i had a six week summer program to teach me how to teach teaching a grade I wasn't placed in, and a subject I wasn't placed in, um, and then I was thrown into a classroom with a bunch of kids who really needed the very best teacher, and that was not me uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, I I, I think that it's important that we really uh, ha- take a reality check that teaching is a difficult profession. Um, and that we want to train teachers ahead of time for the challenges they're going to be facing in these schools, uh, particularly in schools that need the best teachers. Uh, and that's not Teach for America's, you know, framework, right? So they just take who's willing, you know. They 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 have a high. They take high quality people. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I'm not tuning my own horn. I'm actually. It wasn't as competitive when I got in as it is now, right? Yeah, I understand. Um, it's a little. It's a more competitive. Yeah, program. absolutely. And and so and, and so, Teach for America core members, I have adored every single one of them that I met. And I think they're putting their heart and soul into doing great work. But I think that um, it's really important to value the teaching profession. Um, so that's probably my, my my biggest concern. I also, you know, think that it's important that. Um, when I was teaching I was placed in a traditional public school and now Teach for America also places in charter schools and that kind of thing and has become, I think in some ways, uh, seen as this charter school proponent. Um, and maybe less so now, there was a time period and it goes through waves. And so one of the things I will say that's great about Teach for America is I think it's always been a very reflective organization in that it, it thinks about where they are and where how they're benefiting children. Um, and, and then they change and they adapt. And I think that that's something that I learned as a Teach for America core member of how to like analyze where what are our outcomes and where do we want to be in having those goals and getting to those.
0: Yeah. I think sort of like charter schools and, and programs like this, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, I'm glad that they exist. Um, but it seems to me like, as you said, the classroom management when you're in when you're in a situation where you're really needed, but but the expertise that you actually need, you, that's what you don't have, and so it's just a, it's just a real you know, sort of a, sort of a rough spot. And I know I, I think from what I understand there is is don't know what the sort of the fallout rate is, but um, I, I, it's my understanding that some group don't even make it through the two years because it's just too difficult because they don't have the prerequisite sort of as you said the the, the education skills they have obviously the they have the uh, intellect to do it um but yeah they can't really manage
1: yeah and well and i think that on that pushback there's actually been studies that show that the teaching profession generally it doesn't matter whether you come into teaching through teach for america or otherwise teachers that are placed at these schools that have the highest needs uh have a higher dropout of teachers who don't make it past two years. So it's not just a Teach for America right, thing. Right. That's a thing that's happening for all. That's just a trend. Teach. No that's that's what. the trend of, of how, and I think it just underscores the, my initial point here, that teaching is such a challenging profession uh, and we have got to do everything we can to make sure that people understand that and that we're supporting our teachers so that they can do the jobs that are vital for our future success.
0: Yeah, I'm, and we can get into sort of what, what, what our situation is now locally and sort of what you're working on in a minute, but we'll put a pin in it but I did want to say, yeah, it's a lot of the issues we talk about, education, healthcare, tons of stuff, especially here, um, you know, the answer is really just to fund these schools properly um, so you can hire people who are trained and experienced teachers and give them the resources they need so that they're all funded the way, you know, Tattnall or, or Tower Hill or Friends or whatever is, is funded. And then everybody gets this. Everybody gets it. Um, but We just don't. We can't convince ourselves that that's really what needs to happen. So we get a patchwork of, you know, Teach for America. We get charters. We get different programs. um, The one in the Bronx that I can't think of the name of. Um, But yeah, but we 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 never take that step and say, well, actually, we don't need to put all these Rube Goldberg machines together and try to roll the thing and knock the dominoes down and make this good and make that. Actually, if we just funded them to a respectable level and properly staff them that would actually maybe not solve the whole problem because there's other cultural social things but it would go a long way probably longer than anything um to to have an impact on some of the places that are such a disparate such a gap between what elites and the the best get and what is left over yep yep so you you make your way um now You had done, after Teach for America, you had done uh, law work Yep. uh, after law school before you uh, went to the Department of Education.
1: Yeah, so I was at a law firm for two years. I went to law school really thinking what I wanted to do was LGBT civil rights work. So you gotta think, I am in undergrad from 2002 to 2007. I took an extra year because undergrad's awesome. And- uh, Fair point. And that was like a crazy time for, to be a gay man in Arkansas. In 2004, more people in Arkansas voted against, voted for a constitutional amend, amendment banning gay marriage than voted for George W. Bush. So gay people were less popular. Um, I mean, hating gay people was more popular than George W. Bush, right, in, in Arkansas. So I went to law school thinking, like, I want to be an LGBT civil rights lawyer. That's what I want to do um and uh when i got to the law firm i asked them i said you know i really want to do an lgbt discrimination case and i i kind of thought it might be through the employment context um and instead i got this amazing opportunity to represent a student at the university of pittsburgh um, Johnstown campus and uh, a transgender student who had been expelled and, and treated terribly by the university uh, because he is a trans student and um, and so that was my case and that's how I got this Title IX experience at the firm and this is in the Obama years this is you know 2012 to 2014 um, and uh, they had not yet kind of taken the step forward, you know, this was before we had an attorney general that says, you know, trans students, we see you, right? This is before uh, the the administration had really kind of given any guidance to schools and universities. Um, and so got that great experience, but the administration was interested in like, what are we gonna do with Title IX? And so then I went to the Department of Justice in 2014. Uh, and had the great opportunity to work on the case with Gavin Grimm in Virginia and the lawsuit against North Carolina, um, and then helped write the guidance, uh, the trans guidance that was released in 2016. So I uh, had some amazing experience there because of that, just opportunity to do that pro bono case at the law firm. It just happened to be uh, aligned with like what I kind of thought I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, that's because then, uh, so you're at Justice, you go to the Department of Education.
1: Right, right before the election. Right it was befo- like right, okay. September of 2016. Is that when it was? Uh-huh. Oh, boy. <laughs> Never could I have predicted, right? I mean, I did, yeah. Yeah, no.
0: you move over, you're 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 writing, uh, you know, you're helping write this, this law, and then, uh, you know, three months later, you're working for Betsy DeVos. Oh. Uh, well, that's something else, boy. Yeah,
1: punch in the gut.
0: Yeah, and and so you were you were still working on similar uh, sort of similar stuff, so yeah, how do you tell this story? Because I I I know it, but I only know it a curse you know like a cursory glance, uh, and then because I knew you were going to come tell me, I didn't
1: bother reading. Sure. It. Okay. Well, so you know, I think it's important to know the background that I talked about, right? So I've had this this uh, pro bono case at the law firm. I've been at DOJ on the most high level cases regarding trans students rights helped write the guidance itself uh trump gets elected betsy devos gets confirmed she uh has an all-staff meeting and she says you know i have an open door policy uh and the department of ed has an lgbt affinity group and we had heard that the administration The uh, the Department of Education and Department of Justice were going to rescind the trans guidance, and it was important that they do so because the Supreme Court was about to hear the Gavin Grimm case, and the Gavin Grimm case in the Fourth Circuit had relied on the guidance. And so, if they took away the guidance, then the case would be moot, and the Supreme Court wouldn't hear it. So, Jeff Sessions really wanted that guidance to be gone. There was lots of rumors in the media that Betsy DeVos was on the fence. So the LGBT affinity group at the Department of Ed said, hey, let's take her up on her offer. She says she has an open door policy. Let's see if she meets with us. And we thought the worst that could happen, right, is that she says no, and then we get to say, ha ha, Betsy DeVos doesn't actually have an open door policy. But turns out she says yes. So the morning that they're about to rescind the guidance, she meets with myself, uh, two other members of the, uh, three other members of the affinity group and her chief of staff, so it's six of us, right? and she says, you know, as a, as a courtesy, I just wanted to bring you in to let you know that later this afternoon, we are going to rescind the guidance, uh, the way it was done. It was just clumsy. And at this point, I mean, this is guidance that I'd worked on for two years, right? And that the gentleman next to me had, had been my colleague at the at Department of Ed while I was at Justice who'd worked on this guidance. And she said the word clumsy, Um I like, couldn't take, I, was, <laughs> so I said, He finally came point to me for me to say something right it was a small group so it wasn't uh, unusual that I would say something but the first time I'm ever talking to a secretary of anything um and I said you know you said the word clumsy but I think it's really important that you know all the work that went into writing this guidance and all of the students that we talked to administrators that we talked to and parents that we talked to and how important it was for these folks that we wrote a guidance uh, that told them what title nine requires this is how you treat students with dignity and it's important that it's not just a local issue because students like gavin Grimm, when they go to their local school board get called freaks by people in their community. so there's no local protection for students like gavin Grimm. so we as the federal government have a role here to say no title nine requires this um and so out of that meeting all we got was a commitment that she would meet with some trans students and their parents. And she did, to her credit, she did meet with them. Um so that's the beginning of the administration. So we know early on this is not I'm not going to be doing the same kind of work that I was doing at Justice. I'm going to lay low, uh, you know, see how long I can hold out. We thought it was really important that that there were folks within the government that were going to be holding this administration accountable. Um and, and keep doing the good work. And, and so I slept fine at night because the administration wasn't harming students, right? The scope of our work became more narrow, uh, but the work we were doing itself was still good. We were still advocating for students with disabilities and victims of sexual assault on campus and um, you know, race discrimination. Those things were still getting done. Some of the work wasn't, and some of the work that wasn't getting done was work that I cared deeply about, but the other work was still good work. Uh, And that all changed on August 8th of last year uh, when the department decided to open an investigation that was filed, uh, a complaint was filed by the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a hate group, that alleged that the Connecticut Athletic Association, a high school interscholastic athletic association, uh, that their policy permitting schools to allow students to compete in accordance with their gender identity was a violation of Title IX. That's what their complaint said, which is exactly opposite of what the Obama guidance had said that schools were required to do by Title IX. And mind you, in the meantime, the administration has not put forth any guidance material saying, this is how we interpret Title IX. It was all kind of up in the air. We weren't doing investigations on behalf of trans students. uh, And to that point, we had not really opened any investigations that were hostile to trans students either. And on August 8th last year, they opened this investigation. Uh, And so obviously that caught my attention, right? Like how are we interpreting Title IX to require the exact opposite of what the Obama administration said that Title IX requires? So I looked, I said, "How?" I I looked at the documents to figure out how did we get here? Uh, And what I learned (laughs) was that we actually did not do the legal analysis to, to determine how we got there, that there was immense pressure from headquarters in D.C. from um, Ken Marcus himself wanted to see the notification letter opening this investigation um, without first determining whether there was personal jurisdiction over the Connecticut Connecticut Association, whether we actually had a legal theory about how Title IX would apply here. Um, And it was rushed in a way that no other complaint that I've ever seen at the department be rushed, was rushed through. Uh, with some sense of urgency that just doesn't make any sense. So it was all fishy, made no sense, uh, Was looked to me to be a clear violation of law and an abuse of authority. Um, and so I disclosed that to the media. I said, hey, you got to know what's happening on the inside here. Um, the department found out that I had disclosed these emails. It was embarrassing to them, for sure, because it showed I kind of pulled the curtain back in a way that the man doesn't like for you to do. Um, And so then they uh, initiated an investigation. Um, They suspended me from all of my casework, uh, but it was a non-disciplinary suspension starting in September uh, while they determined whether they would propose any discipline. Uh, And then in December, they... Uh, proposed my removal from the federal government. Um, Luckily, I had lined up the job with the ACLU here in Delaware, which is a dream job, a dream opportunity, which, you know, when one door closes, another opens kind of thing. So it's kind of, it ended up perfectly for me uh, personally. But um, I mean, it was definitely a scary time. uh, And it was, you know, retaliation for my disclosures, which were protected by the Whistleblower Protection Act. So now that I'm challenging the retaliation uh, and I filed a complaint with the Office of Special Counsel, alleging that they have engaged in prohibited personnel practices by retaliating against me for those disclosures.
0: Yeah, and now I guess the the reason that I read what I read, because I reread it, um, was just because of that. Um, those lessons, the thing that makes them profound is not that they don't make sense when you read them. You know, you read lesson one, don't obey in advance. Well, that seems reasonable. But then when, but you, you can catch yourself doing it. People do it every day. Um, so, yeah, you read all, have professional ethics and stand up for when something's right. And it sounds good when you read it. But w- what to do it uh, takes a lot of fucking guts. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can tell you that you're a hero to a lot of people for just saying, just saying like this isn't, yeah, I mean, this is a, just a tactical, political move um, to rescind you know, gains that people have made. And um, and obviously by that time, I'm sure that you saw that, you know, the administration at, at that level was going to be, you know, pretty cutthroat. So, you know, to make that decision, I think shows um, a, a fortitude and a professional ethic that uh, is, 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 you know, we, ha- we should look at that as an example. All of us, everything we're doing, especially at this time. Because you know it's it's dangerous time, so yeah, I think everybody commends you on that for sure.
1: I think that's right, and I think that that was the thing. I knew I was there for a reason, right? And I I refused. I in my mind, I still served the American people, right? I was not serving this administration. I was serving the people, uh, and that's our role as a as a federal bureaucrat, right? That's that's our duty. That's our oath. Um, and so when they required of us as career bureaucrats to do their dirty work uh it, they crossed the line um and i think that so many folks you know i'm i'm lucky you know i have a partner of 14 years of a great support network um you know even if i had gotten fired and didn't have a job lined up i was gonna be okay um and a lot of people don't have that safety net right and so they you feel the pressure to go along with the flow. Uh, and I understand that, but I, I think that there is an obligation that you take uh, as, that, as that oath that you take as a federal bureaucrat, that you're serving the people. Um, and when you see a violation of law or an abuse of authority, you've got to stop it. You've got to stand up and say, no, this is, we're, we're outside the lines of what we do as public servants. Uh, and I also had the—I had those two students, right? I had Gavin Grimm. I met, you know, I interviewed Gavin Grimm and I sat with Gavin Grimm's mother at the federal district court trial in Virginia uh, and held her hand as the judge asked some kind of crazy questions about the case. I clearly had no understanding of trans students whatsoever. Um, I couldn't look her in the eye knowing what I knew after August 8th. I could not look her in the eye had I not stood up and said no. This is this isn't appropriate. This is an abuse of of our federal government's uh, enforcement and investigation powers. So I didn't really feel like I had much of a choice, um, and I'm lucky that I had the support network that I could that I could follow through with my convictions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I certainly. Understand and appreciate uh, at a personal level, you know, being able to have the support network and have the resources to sort of take a stand. Um, But professionally like that uh, and putting it on the line at that level, I, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that you felt sort of compelled, uh, especially personal stories are going to do that. You know, when you sit with somebody, you're going to feel like, well, I'm going to fight for this person. Because this isn't right, but still, in in the face of some, you know, some stuff that's gotten very ugly. Um, so that part, you know, it's not like it's not like you're, you know, you're going basically against the administration of the president of the United States. So you know, you gotta, you gotta have some guts. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Um, so now at the ACLU, yeah, in Delaware, you're working on. Another sort of uh, education case. I am. Um, So, yeah, explain. And I know um, it's sort of a lot happened in the last few weeks, even um, sort of getting on the case. Explain what you're working on. and I I think it sort of ties into some of the other stuff we've talked about, but we'll go from there.
1: Sure, yeah. So it's kind of funny that I'm on this case because um, when I when my partner moved to Delaware in uh, August of 2018, and I, I this is actually like my one year anniversary. I think today might be my one year anniversary in Delaware. Nice. And uh, when I first you know moved here, I just started meeting people because obviously I have an interest in, in education. One of the first people I met was um, Dan Rich, professor at the University of Delaware. Brilliant man and uh he said hey do you know about this aclu case i was like no i have no idea i don't know anything in delaware yet um and and read it and so this so this is a case that was filed two years ago against the state it's Delawareans for educational opportunity versus carney um and uh aclu are the attorneys on the case we represent the naacp and Delawareans for educational opportunities which is a group of uh, parents and advocates for Uh, Low-income English learners and uh, students with disabilities, and essentially the thrust of the case, there are two tracks. Uh, It's against uh, the state for the the way it funds our education system uh, in a way that does not provide for an adequate education to what we have what have been deemed the disadvantaged students. So disadvantaged students are English language learners. students from low-income households and uh, k-3 special education students Uh, and the reason that those students have been identified in this case is because uh, before the opportunity funding there were no set-aside dedicated funds uh, directed to these students needs and we know that these students require uh, additional resources uh, in the classroom in order to have adequate education and those resources weren't being provided, aren't being provided. That's our claim, that's the, the background of the case. Uh, and so we've sued the state to make the funding structure equitable so that it serves those students to meet their needs. Uh, the other, there, like I said, there are two tracks. That's one track. The other track is, is against the county government, uh, the county government uh, because of their failure to reassess property taxes.
0: We've talked about that in here. Quite I, bet a big, yeah. I bet you have,
1: I bet you have um and so that part of the case the set that that track has proceeded more quickly and so there was a trial last summer uh post-trial briefings happened this last fall before i joined the aclu and we expect a decision soon on the county track on whether there's a constitutional requirement uh for counties to reassess property taxes and as you know folks i don't know this well enough to get too deep in the weeds on it but but obviously property taxes uh, are a huge source of local funding for local school districts. And since they haven't been reassessed in 30, 40 years, um, there's huge inequities there of, of what schools are getting the resources that they need. So that's the, the other track of the case. On the state track against the governor and the Department of Education, uh, the Secretary of Education, uh, right now we're in the middle of what's called discovery um and so we have conducted and defended several fact witness depositions we're compiling expert reports um those expert reports are due next friday fact discovery was supposed to end last week our deposit fact discovery was supposed to end last friday um but we've pushed a few depositions into this month um and the trial is set for the day after election day on the state track of the case so what is there a mechanism specifically? Um,
0: yeah, I mean that's a funny, uh, funny coincidence, right? We're not gonna, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna let that one pass. Because, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's no no collusion on that bad boy. Um, what is it? Is it simply that we that you you can demonstrate that the that the uh, funding system is not by what measurement do we know that I mean, obviously, we can tell, but how, how is that measured? How do you make that argument to say this uh, cohort of students, um, low-income students, um, disabled students, and oh, English learners, mm-hmm. um, what's, what's the concrete argument about how it should be funded? Is there an argument to say, well, this is how it's being done now. These are the deficiencies we can list, one, two, three, four, five. But um, what do we expect? Uh, how, is there an argument to say sort of these are the deficiencies, but here's how they're not being funded. Here's what's happening. Here's what the government's doing um, or not doing um, to address these deficiencies.
1: Sure. And so I think those those might be two different questions. And and certainly, we're at the stage of the litigation where we're trying to show that what the government's currently doing is failing these students. Uh, And we can do that in a lot of different ways, right? We can measure um, students' academic outcomes. uh, And I say we, I mean, like, as a community, as a society, right? Um, The Department of Education has adopted an ESSA plan, uh, Every Student Succeeds Act plan, where they have established certain metrics of what is student success. Uh, And that's based on, in large parts, standardized testing. Uh, And when we look at those standardized test scores for that cohort, we see that those students um, are not achieving the gains that the state has said would demonstrate that academic success that educational adequacy um and so that's one metric you can look at and, um you know i think that there are uh, that there may be others and, and so we what we're looking at is that cohort are they achieving uh what we need to show the court is that at, at right now that that cohort is not obtaining an adequate education uh and we're going to use the facts that that back that up and i think that you know I, you probably you probably collected you know governor carney quotes talking about inadequacies in public education in delaware it's not i've been here a year and i'll tell you it's not a secret that our schools are failing these students. Um, And so it's kind of wild to me that we are even debating this in court right now, that whether or not the current structure in Delaware is serving these students such that they receive an adequate education. Because in the last year, before I even worked at the ACLU, what I was learning from folks is that, yeah, we all kind of know that our schools are failing these students.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think what you'll see in a broader sense, and that kind of gets me into sort of what you were perspective is I always like to hear people who have just sort of just come and sort of how they find our little shire um, but what you what you'll see is part of the broader Delaware way sort of idea especially in the state and county is um, do do as little as possible like as long as you know at a state level you know as, as long as the the, the 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 capital's moving through here um, just do nothing, you know, or, or next to nothing. And so both of the tracks of this lawsuit just sort of play that out. Mm-hmm. I mean, Matt Meyer sat in the chair you're sitting in. Mm-hmm. We had this conversation. Because right. we had the, the, the two news journal reporters. We did a whole show on uh, the stories they wrote about the mm-hmm. tax reassessment. Mm-hmm. So we talked about it. And it's just, a, it's a political game because, you know, you have... You have the city, and then the broader county in Newcastle County um, that sort of do it differently, uh, and no one wants to have to do anything until they're legally mandated to do it. Um, so, I mean, schools could be falling down; some of them are. Mm-hmm. You know, there's serious problems, um, but and again, I, I don't. As you said, the secret to solving them is not. It's actually not a secret. But the there's no political will.
1: Sure. Well, and you know, and and our case, I think, has really uh, pushed the needle forward on this. Uh, you know, the opportunity opportunity funds fell from the sky after we filed this case, right? I did notice that. That uh, was.
0: I don't know where they just conjured it up. It's almost like it was magic. <laughs> kind
1: of, right? So it's amazing what we can do when we get pushed on this. And, and I think that's why this case is so important. And, and I skipped a step of this case. So there was a point. We've already succeeded on the motion to dismiss. Um, and at that point, the state was actually arguing that there wasn't an adequacy requirement in the state constitution. Um, and Judge Laster, to his credit in the opinion, and I'm, I'll paraphrase, but uh, one, one of the, the most powerful parts of his opinion was that the state's uh, position is essentially that they could give a single book to 500 students and put them all in a gymnasium and that they would be meeting the constitutional requirements for education in the state of Delaware. And he he dis- he said, no, that's not right. And so he d- denied the motion to dismiss uh, and said that there was a constitutional mandate, that there is within um, the efficiency clause of the Delaware State Constitution, uh, a an adequacy component that we must not only provide an education, but that that education must do something, right? That students must actually be learning, um, and and the state needs to demonstrate that.
0: Yeah, that's when you get into the actual machinations, sort of like the games that are played against it. You know, it's one thing to be passive. Or like you said, or to come up with these funds all of a sudden—it's another thing to actually try to figure out a way um, to dismiss the case, or to like to to to, to basically say we don't have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're saying is that yep. that nowhere written down says that our schools have to do anything. Like right. we don't have to do anything. Right. And to go into court and make that argument just to try to ensure you don't have to do anything. I think is is really diabolical. <laughs> I mean, I really yeah. do.
1: I mean, I, I I guess I should probably be careful about where. <laughs> oh, you don't say. <laughs> oh, this okay. is com- again. <laughs> okay, so
0: we've done this <laughs> before. So yeah, let me yeah. no, let, me, let me give a caveat. No, I want to go commentary. further. I want to actually go this is further. Commentary. Because... And again, I'm not even. We don't even have to talk specifically about yep. this case. It's the idea that you take a you take an active role in not addressing a problem that everyone yes. knows is there. Yes. Simply be you know just simply out of I guess the principle that. We, we don't want to do anything. We don't. Want to, we don't want to take responsibility. It's like we would. Yeah. We would prefer to ignore this. Right. Actually, um. But you like. But if it wasn't for a team of lawyers just trying to get you to, to, to educate our kids, uh, you wouldn't do it. Right. So it just kind of goes to show you what kind of person. And someone. there's a. But whole, that's just me. That's me talking. That's, not you. And talking.
1: And that's fine. It's me but it goes. It, Rob, I think it's even more than that because, you know. I I think that some people may assume that well, when the state gets sued, well, the state has to defend itself, right? Other states who have been sued for similar propositions have said, "Oh, yeah, you know what? We do have a constitutional mandate to educate our kids. Let's settle this case, right?" So not so. I think that that underscores your point, right? That they will fight. That right now, what they're fighting is fundamental change. and and it's not just the, putting up you know the best defense that we can because we have to. Um, it, that is part of the 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 um, mindset, right? Um, and they're spending taxpayer money to defend a system that we almost universally acknowledge is failing this cohort of students. They're spending hordes of taxpayer funds conducting these depositions that we've been defending for the last month of our fact witnesses that are all telling the you know very similar stories about the deficiencies for students that are from low income households that are english language learners their special ed k3 we have these fact witnesses that tell will tell you these heartbreaking stories of what's happening in these schools we don't need fact i mean we have those stories but the people this is known right but they're they're devo- de- devoting all of these resources to defend a system that, as a new person to Delaware, I thought that we all were kind of on the same page that like the current system's broken and we should fix it. Um, so it's kind of wild to me the the amount of resources that are being poured into defending a system that's not doing what it should.
0: Well, really, what it is to me, I I, I use this sort of phrase. Very simple. It's all fake. That the the. the uh, <laughs> It's not even that they don't feel like they should do it, but a lot of the problems, and this goes, again, this is broader than just education. This is criminal justice, social problems, broader economic problems. Um, We need to make sure that they're in a particular box that they can be ignored, you know, whether it's, whether it's low-income neighborhoods and the people there, we put the cops, they sequester those in those neighborhoods, like, The idea is that we don't want to have this conversation. Like, it's not even that we don't want to educate our kids or we don't want to make sure, you know, people aren't homeless or whatever it is. They don't even want to have the conversation because really what the goal is is to hide it. It's like, don't lift, sort of like you said, don't pull the curtain back. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's the thing. Because once you start pulling the curtain back, um, people start to realize that everything that they think uh, is is phony, mm-hmm. and I think that's the broader context that I see it in. And, and it is again, it's 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 really uh, it's kind of disgusting. And you know, I don't, I don't, I guess that's why I come here and talk about it all the time <laughs> because I, I don't, I don't know what else to do. I'm sort of at my wits' end because at, you explain it in such a concise, sort of clear way, and it's like they they do not want to do this. It's not that there aren't solutions to these problems. Right. They don't want you to think about it. Right. Just forget about it. Like, I mean you can imagine are you good the world, and you're right? good and you're fine. It doesn't you,
1: take too much creativity to imagine a world in which you live in where there is a governor who wants to be the education governor and wants to say, listen, our system is failing and we're gonna fix it. Right? And roll up the sleeves and, and like that would be a completely different approach. Rather than oh we've been sued we don't have a constitutional obligation, and we're going to defend this case with all the attorneys we can hire.
0: Well, they operate as a corporation would operate. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They operate in like we have to protect our capital. Yeah. And so whatever we do to that end is thereby good.
1: Sure. Because what
0: we're doing is protecting, you know, we're protecting people's capital. We're protecting, you know, you know, people don't want to pay more tax. They don't care. They'll send their kids again to private school or whatever. So, so it's, um, that's sort of what it is because we don't, we're not going to, we don't have a governor who wants to represent people. We have a governor who wants to run the state. What the state is, is a machine for the corporations and for capital that are here. And so that's just a fact. Um, and and the, the more we can just tell stories to make that fact abundantly clear. I think the better off that we're going to be um, because I, I, you know, stories like this, you can talk about them all over the place, every issue, everywhere around here. And it's, it's not great. It's
1: not. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the thing I, I, I don't have, I, um, you know, I try, try not to assume bad intentions, right. Um, as a general rule, um, but people show you who you are also as a general rule. Um, but one of the things I'm really excited about in Delaware is that, uh, it is such a small state and we all, that, that we're empowered, right? It doesn't have to be this way. And I think that they're coming from, I lived in DC the last seven years. And the thing that I'm so excited about, about being in Delaware, um, is that we just have at our fingertips the ability to build that people power, to build that community. And I think democracy is hard work, right? And democracy requires uh, that we build these lines of communication and we share these stories and we build a community. And democracy requires that I care about my neighbor as much as I care about myself, right? And I think that Delaware provides for us the, 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 the structure to build a strong democracy that takes care of its people. And we're not doing it yet, but I think that we can. Yeah, I mean, it's a,
0: it's a double-edged sword. We talk about that, just the theories of change, because you and I are involved in some network stuff too, and just organizing the people in our in our circles. And um, yeah, it, it, on one hand, because it's small, if we do organize, um, we have a... It's, it's something we can tackle. It's not like, it doesn't seem out of, out of control. But on the other hand, um, because of the type of state this is, and because of the kind of structure, um, you know, and it's, you know, it's people talk about professional managerial class. I mean, this is a, this is it, right? This is everything, you know, it's just, you know, we have lawyers and bankers and chemists and stuff and everybody else. And yeah, so that kind of makes it tough. Because the power has consolidated into the hands of people who have every interest uh, to make sure that we ignore all of this. That's the tricky part. Is, is We do have more people, um, but we have to somehow start wrestling away to political power with those people. That's like the next step to me. Um, and I hope that that's sort of what seems like it's going to happen. Because I believe, like you do, it's, it's, not only is it hard work... It's it, it. takes. It's not election cycle. It takes a sustained effort, Absolutely. on Legal fronts, on electoral politics fronts, on you know organizing and just all kinds of things. And so you're not going to see. There's not going to be one thing that happens and we say, "Oh, we won." Sure, like, it doesn't work like yep, that. That's right. Um, so um, you know, people sort of accuse people who think as I do of having like lofty. What did What did Biden call him? Pie in the sky. He actually misused that, but we're not even going to get into that. He misused it. God can barely put a sentence together. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we get, we get accused of it. But actually what it is is trying to uh, convince people that we it doesn't have to be this way, as you said. Right. We can take some of that power back, and the schools can actually be good. Right. We can actually have a lot less homeless or no homeless people. Right. We can... That can be done. Right. If we can give four and a half million dollars to Amazon, right. we can certainly do something about homelessness. Yeah. But again, it's just the people who have political power, there's no political will to do that because that's not why they, they have their political power to ensure that those are things are ignored. Yeah. So you're new to the area, you come here, uh, I mean, let's be honest, this is a weird it's a weird place. <laughs> is See, it? I mean, isn't it? I'm
1: from Arkansas, so I can't. I, uh, okay, you know, those All in right. glass houses can't throw stones.
0: Yeah, and I guess, well, my my view of 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 where you grew up is is almost sort of more. Uh, I don't want to call it genteel, but like, I don't know, and maybe because I'm in a bubble, I've always been here. I find it very strange, but. Yeah, what are your what are your reflections on one year in uh, in the
1: first state here? I'm lo- I love it. I, I you know my partner and I bought a house last summer in Midtown Brandywine. I walk to work. He walks to work. Um, I, you know, we have twice the house for half of what we could afford in D.C. Um, there I, there's such a strong uh, community and a strong activist community here. There's such commitment. So many of the folks who live in Delaware are from Delaware, and so they care deeply about this state. Um, and that was something that was missing for me in, in D.C., and it's something that felt familiar because that's similar to, I think, a lot of folks in Arkansas. Like, Arkansans don't typically get out of Arkansas. Um, and being a gay man, Arkansas was not a place that ever felt like home in a lot of ways for me. Uh, so I had no intentions of going back. So I think I've been for a long time now searching for a home, um, and Delaware just feels like home to me. And uh, so I, I, lo- I don't know. I mean, I, I, think I love the quirky stuff about Delaware. Um, yeah, I guess it, I, I can see that. I can see how it can
0: be char- that quirky stuff can be charming. I guess it just grates on you after a while. <laughs> You know what I
1: mean? Sure. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a year in. Like, right. Yeah. Let's no, do an interview I, in 10 years and yeah, see how I like, feel. Just, right? like, I, see the same, I see the same people at the coffee yeah. shop every fucking day. <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, th- I mean, again, we've, and we talk about this all the time too. It's like, it, it's a, it, 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 it really has an impact on just politics and professional sort of interactions because everybody's doing the same stuff almost. Like, not exactly, but you know i go to a network meeting i'll, I'll see you I'll, I'll go to this and i'll see you know other people that i organize with i do um a lot of those circles and even you know even at, at leg hall you go to dover you see the same
1: people yeah yeah you go right you True. go to you go
0: to you go to rehoboth or bethany yeah in the summertime you see the person that lives in your building or whatever it's the same it's 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 you, yeah it's it, it gets a little claustrophobic almost. Sure. Um, but again, I don't know that could – if you, when you come from a small town or you come – I mean, it's sort of a bigger place. But I, I don't – it seems like we're all shoved together in here. And uh, like, I, and I don't know why there's no – there's, there's never any pass-through. We're always just the same people bumping in. Like sure, so. sure. But I mean, I just met you, so that's, that's nice. Right? There you go. So that's, and, and I happening. think that that's
1: – so I – I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree. And I think that I'm still in the phase of being new enough here uh, that everybody I meet is still a new person. Um, and so that's still exciting for me, to meet all these new people. Um, and one, and, But I do – I mean, I recognize what you're saying, that you'll go to the, the events and see the same kinds of new people, right? <laughs> um, so they're not going to be new for very long. But I think that there is a whole – world out there in delaware um that we're not seeing at network meetings for example right. um and we've just got to do a better job and so like i'm really pouring myself so you know trying to go to my civic association meetings isn't enough but also inviting the people that are my neighbors that don't go to the civic association meetings to come out so i'm hosting a house meeting for network delaware in a couple of weeks uh, with just neighbors who aren't who aren't the faces that we see at these meetings uh, and I think that that goes back to the the hard work part, right? Is like being vulnerable, opening your home up to people that you know. I don't like everything they post on Facebook, right? I don't know that we're actually going to get along, but we've got to build at least some um, some some strength together, right? And that we're we are neighbors, and that neighborhood solidarity, neighborhood solidarity at the very least, and we probably have other commonalities, right? That that can grow that strength, but we've I think the the that goes back to the hard work of democracy i think we've got to build community and that means going making strangers our friends uh and i think delaware is a place that that can happen uh and i think that you know network is a great example of a organization that's really intentional about uh you know hiring organizers that meet new people and try to get them in and that's hard work and it, you're not going to see it in a single yeah i mean you know, what you're year.
0: saying is right because the other the other thing about um a lot of places in delaware and wilmington's very stark but it's like this most places the suburbs and in dover and is it's, it's still extremely segregated absolutely and so a, as you said yeah we we maybe we bump into the same people but there are other people out there absolutely we just we're we're not we're not reach it's out it's a thing of outreach and sort of breaking down the barriers that are there but again this comes back to the structure is is there to sequester people to yeah, to, right. to ignore issues totally like you know th- there's rough neighborhoods you don't yep. go or this sure. or whatever um, and and yeah so breaking down those barriers and having some sort of neighborhood solidarity or or outreach or just like yeah we all care together right um yeah i think that can i mean it seems to be working yeah, actually, I joke about it being sort of incestuous in these political circles and uh, organizing circles, but I mean, yeah, I mean, if you look at the work of Network Delaware, it's outreach and it Absolutely. is it is working. It's happening.
1: Yep, yep. It gives me a lot of hope. It really does, and uh, it, it's just a new level of community uh, engagement, cross engagement, and outreach that I've not been a part of in a, in a while now. Um, but it's, it, it inspires me and I'm, 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 you know, I'm new enough to be optimistic and not yet jaded.
0: Well, I'm glad we're ending this way because as I always say, like, I'm a sort of a cynical pessimist, (laughs) Uh, um, you know, somebody's got to take this burden. Uh, I'm the victim here. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, when I do think about the work that we're doing and the improvements and just, just in the past few years from a political and organizing and activist thing, you know there is something to look at. And be like, you know, we're, we're doing something. Something is happening. Yeah. So, Dwayne, thanks for coming chin out. up. <laughs> yeah, keep your chin up. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Well, we've reached the end of another great conversation. We have another hero here, as you as you heard. Uh, I want everybody to read Timothy Snyder's book. You can get it uh, on audiobook. I gave away all my copies, so you can't get one from me. Um, but really, you know, it, it's it's you can read it in a couple of hours. And it, it just makes you think about the things that kind of go on around you, but you sort of ignore. Like, uh, part of it is not letting yourself get into a rut and just letting things gradually rock you to sleep as schools fall down. Not cool. Well, will speak to you guys later. Left is best.